If you've been here very many times, you, you know it. I like to start sermons with a story most of the time. People like stories. They're way better than sermons. That's why Jesus preached through stories so much. I think this is going to be no exception. I want to start with a story. I want to tell you the story about a Christian. And by calling this person a Christian, that means someone who has come to understand that they are a sinner and separated from God because of their sin. But but when Jesus went to the cross, when he died, what he was doing was paying the death penalty this person's sins deserve. And when they place their faith in Jesus, they're promised eternal life. That's what I mean by a Christian. They're not better than somebody else or... uh, they believe in Jesus for their salvation. And this, this Christian came to understand, this person came to understand that and believe in Jesus. And they loved God because of what they understood the length he went to, to love them first. And then over time, though, this particular Christian got busy, got distracted began to pursue things that weren't God, began to try and make an identity for themselves out of their accomplishments and success, money, began to sort of slide away from the Lord and spend as much time with Him in the Word and prayer and church. And then eventually something, something bad happened in this person's life and that sort of hit them in the head and they, they took stock of their spiritual life and went, wow, Lord, I have slid away from you. How did I get here? And they sort of cried out from, from this rock bottom place where they were at and returned to the Lord and remembered their first love and walked with the Lord again until that same cycle repeated itself again and again and again. I like to start sermons with a story because it grabs attention, but usually I start sermons with a story about someone else. And if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, you probably noticed that that story was about you. Because that story is about me. And as we're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 9, that is the story. It's the universal human condition as applied to believers. This endless cycle. And if you have been a Christian for very long, you've noticed that cycle. Unless you're really good at deceiving yourself into believing you don't have the fall away part. (laughs) And maybe if you've noticed that cycle in your life, you've been at the bottom part of that cycle enough that you've started to entertain questions like, yeah, but is this the time where God just says enough is enough? Is this the time when God's just like done with me? Like I'm sick of this guy or this gal. 
Or maybe I'm not even a, maybe I'm not even a Christian because I'm still on the cycle. Well, today is a story of a group of people who realize maybe for the first time they're in that cycle and maybe, they, maybe they get scared that this is the time God has done with us and they, they come together and they search his word and they come to the conclusion, I want you to come to about that, that cycle. Last week we studied together Nehemiah chapter 8. And here's what happened quickly in Nehemiah chapter 8. The walls of Jerusalem have just been rebuilt. And people feel safe now. And Nehemiah wants people to return to the Lord. He wants to rebuild people instead of just rebuilding the walls. And so they come together for a giant, what we would call a church service. That's what we studied last week was that first church service. And they asked a priest named Ezra to get out the scrolls, the Bible of their day, and, and read to them from the Word. And that's what Ezra did. Ezra stood up in front of everyone, everyone and read and preached the Scriptures for six hours. And because Ezra read and preached for six hours, all of the people decided to fire Ezra and start looking for a different pastor. Not really. But that's probably what we would do. The... The response, when Ezra read from the law, is he read a description of what a life lived with God looks like, and then the people compared that to their own lives and went, oh my goodness, I'm nothing like this. They realize I've slid, I've walked, I'm, I'm not living, walking with the Lord. And it kind of, it, it really cut them Deep, they began to weep and mourn. But they also learned that day when Ezra was preaching that according to the Jewish calendar, they weren't supposed to be weeping and mourning. It was a time of celebration. So they had to push the pause button on their mourning. And they, they celebrated feasts for a week. And today, they pushed the play button again on their mourning. And as we read this, the very beginning of the, of the passage, you'll see that they're mourning because they, they are, they're fasting. They're wearing sackcloth and they've got dirt on their heads, dust on their heads. And those were like the universal signs for mourning. And what they're mourning is their own spiritual condition. They're mourning their sin. Like where they've gotten, what the mess they've made of their lives. And it's so instructive to us today. 2,400 years later, what they do when they come to realize they've walked, they've slid, they go toward the Lord in their sin. They don't, they don't make either of the two common mistakes. They don't pretend their sin isn't there like, oh, well, I know what the Bible says, but really for me, that's not really a problem. And here's why they don't do any of that. They call their sin a sin. But they also don't believe that because of their sin, now God is so mean and so tired and so sick and so angry that he's too dangerous to go toward. They go toward God in their sin. And then what we're going to read today 
is their conclusion. We don't really read much about this next church service. What we read is a prayer that comes out of it. What we're going to read today, most of it, is the longest prayer recorded in the Bible. There's your trivia answer for today. Where's the longest prayer recorded in the Bible? It's in Nehemiah chapter 9. And some of you just thought, wow, that's interesting. And some of you only heard the word long and went, oh boy, here we go. We are going to read the longest prayer recorded in the scriptures. And then we're going to see what it says about that cycle that you have been on, I have been on. I don't know where you're at in that cycle this morning, but I hope the Lord speaks to you where you are from his word. Let's go to his word together. Nehemiah chapter 9. It's a giant history lesson prayer. They're going to pray the history of Israel briefly back to God. And I want you to notice as we read this, how, how many times the cycle repeats itself in this chapter. Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, another six hours. And for another fourth, they confessed their sin and they worshiped the Lord their God. Now on the Levites platform stood these guys and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Verse five, then the Levites and all these guys said, arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. And here we are. Now we're in this prayer that came out of this church meeting. Verse 6. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of the heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them and the heavenly host bows down before you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, and the Maglite, and the Loctite, and the otherites. To give to his descendants. Just making sure you're still listening out there. You passed, and you have fulfilled your promise because you are righteous. Verse 9, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them, and you made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea before them, So that Israel passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground, and their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone into raging waters. And with a pillar of cloud you led Israel by day, and with a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, and you gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. 
So you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments and statutes and laws through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for them, for their hunger, and you brought forth water from a rock for them, for their thirst. And you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. And here comes the repeated cycles. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and they would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen. They did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness. You are gracious and compassionate. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in loving kindness, loyal love, and you did not forsake them. Verse 18. Even when they made a made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, this is your God who brought you up from Egypt. Even when they committed great blasphemies, you, in your great compassion, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. Indeed, 40 years you provided for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want. Their clothes didn't even wear out, and their feet didn't swell. You, you also gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted them uh, to them as a boundary. They took possession of the land of, of Sihon and the, the king of Heshman and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. You made their sons numerous as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So their sons inherited and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. And you gave, to them in, gave them into their hand with their kings and their peoples of the land to do with them as they desired. They captured fortified cities and a fertile land. They took possession of houses full of every good thing, home cisterns, uh, vineyards, olive groves, fruit, fruit trees in abundance. And so they ate and they were filled and grew fat and they reveled in your great goodness. But, verse 26, they became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried out to you in their time of distress, you heard from heaven and according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. Verse 28, but as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore, you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. When they cried out to you, you heard from heaven and many times you rescued them according to your compassion and admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances by which if a man observes them, he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. However, you bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. And nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them because you are a gracious and compassionate God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, 
who keeps covenant and loving kindness. Do not let all the hardships seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. Verse 33, however, you are just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully when we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments or your admonitions with which you have admonished them. But they, in their own kingdom, with your great goodness which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. And behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They, they also rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. And because of all this, we're going to make an agreement in writing and we're going to commit to return to you. And we will talk about that commitment next week. Okay, all of that is a great history lesson prayer that demonstrates that repeated cycle. And every time God takes this stiff-necked, stubborn people, takes them back. And where they start on this prayer, this history lesson prayer, they don't start in the cycle. They start far before that. They start clear back at the beginning and they remind themselves. This is the prayer that comes out of this meeting where they've realized their sin. They start by reminding themselves in prayer to God that God is the creator. God, you made all of this. Here's what they're reminding themselves. God, everything is yours. We belong to you. And God, you can deal with what is yours however you want. Sometimes when we get angry at God for what he has allowed or hasn't allowed in our lives, I think sometimes we forget, like, this is all God's. He has every right to act however he would have chosen to act. And, And when... When sin entered the world, God would have had every right to leave us fallen and broken because this place is his because he created it. From God as creator, they they leap over to the man God chose. He named, named Abram, God renamed him Abraham, who would become the father of the nation of Israel. I've I got to take a sidebar from this just a second to explain kind of why they go to Abraham and they talk about his promises, the, God, the, the, the promises God made to Abraham all the time. Do, do you know, pretty much everything good that happens in the Bible can be traced back to two promises that God made in the first half of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. And did you know, Every good thing that happens between God and people, between God and you, can be traced back to those same two promises that happened in the first half of the first book. Here's what I mean, and here's why these are so important. In Genesis 3, we read the story of the first people, 
and, and sin enters the world. And God comes down in Genesis 3 and tells, tells Adam and Eve the curse that they have brought on mankind and the entire planet. But before God tells the curse, God gives a promise that one day the curse will be reversed. Before he ever explains the results of sin, he promises to fix it. It's Genesis 3.15, and what God says is, one day, a descendant of this woman, Eve, a descendant of that woman, a man, a human, will crush the serpent that deceived you, thereby reversing the curse. And a, and a major theme throughout the entire Old, Old Testament is, who will that serpent-crushing, curse-reversing human, man, be? And is that promise still alive, or have we messed it up? That theme runs throughout the Old Testament. We see it at the flood. By Genesis 6, mankind is so decrepit, so awful, so evil that God decides, man, i got to wipe the place out. But he can't kill every human. Why? Because he promised a descendant of Eve will be born that will crush the serpent and reverse the curse of sin. And already right then we know God keeps his promises no matter how wicked we get. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 12, and, and God, from the evidence we have, there's nobody walking with God anymore. God shows up to a guy named Abram. He picks Abram, not because Abram is awesome, because God is awesome. And, and he shows up to Abram and says, hey, Abram, I'm God. And if you follow me, I'll make you this three-pronged promise. I'm going to make a great nation out of your descendants. Your kids and their kids and their kids and their kids will become a great nation. And I promise I will give them a permanent homeland. We call it the promised land. And third, God says, I will bless not just your family. I will bless all the families of the earth through your descendants. And those two promises... The serpent-crushing, curse-reverser promise. And that promise to Abram, who became Abraham. Every good thing that happens between God and men can come back and find its foundation in those two promises that God will keep. We learn a lot more about those promises and who that special descendant will be and what he'll be like and he'll be a king and he'll be born in Bethlehem and he's a descendant of this guy. But... Because God promised those things and will keep them. We have every other good thing from God. And I tell you all of that so I can tell you this. Your, the fact that you are here as a saved person, if you have believed in Jesus for your salvation, that has much more to do with God keeping his promises than it has to do anything about you. And I don't want to burst your bubble, but your salvation is much more about God than it is about you. I think we tend to be selfish. I don't know if you knew. <laughs> but we tend to be sort of self-focused. And somewhere deep inside, we want our salvation to be about us. Like that we're a good person. 
or that we're better than our neighbor down the street. Or we want, and we sort of want God to be about us. Our, like, faith walk can be very self-focused. How I'm doing, what God's doing for me, what he's not allowing for me, what's happening in my life, my level of obedience, my growth. We want God to be about us. We want our salvation to be about us. But it's not, and he's not. Like, God is for you because God keeps his promises. We are here because God promised he would bless all kinds of people over the whole earth through that special descendant. And God kept that promise. That special descendant, his name was Jesus. And he promised, I'll build my church. That's how I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. We are here because God keeps his promises. And we have to understand that to understand the rest of this history lesson. Because if this history lesson teaches anything, it teaches that like Israel can't out-sin those promises. All right, so you picked Abraham, God. And you gave him these promises. And for those people in Nehemiah's day, they, they have to know the only reason we still exist as a nation is because God promised Abraham that we would be a nation and he would bring that special descendant out of this nation. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. That's why they always bring up Abraham. A major lesson of the Old Testament is no matter how violently disobedient and ridiculously awful that the Israelites got, God would always take them back because he promised. All right, remember that. Next thing they pray, this was very quickly, they they thank God for giving them the law. Now, we don't think of the law always as a gift. We think of it as like a burden. But the law is perfect. For the first time ever, God showed up and told people, you want to please the God of the universe? Live like this. It's a great gift to know what God expects. Now, we can't keep it, but that doesn't make, that's not the law's fault. It's perfect. We are not. And then at this point in this passage, this is where that endless cycle starts. And I'm not going to go through every instance of the cycle. But here's where that cycle comes from. We have a God who could have treated people however he wanted after they sinned, after we sinned. But he chose to promise salvation to some. He chose to do that. And once he promised it, he will fulfill it. And then he tells people, saved people, here, here's how you live if you want to walk with me. That's the law. But we can't do it. And that's why the cycle starts. We love God. He saved us. He keeps his promise. Oh, but I'm not very good at living according to the law. And I walk away. And before long, I realize how far I've gone. I cry out to God and he takes me back. Every single sin starts a little mini cycle. Now, here's the cycle. So, so we all know what we're talking about. Over and over in this passage, God, because he's true to his promises, he blesses Israel with something good. 
Israel falls into sin and idolatry. Bad stuff happens to Israel. God uh, cries, or Israel cries out to God for help. He helps them and does good stuff. And Israel loves God for a little bit and the cycle repeats. The repeated tragedy of the Old Testament is reading Israel pursue things that aren't God, that God doesn't like, thinking those things will give them something better than God will give them. And they never learn. Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley wrote, I love this quote, that men do not learn very much from the lessons of history is the most important of all the lessons of history. Right? That we don't learn lessons from history is the most important lesson from history. We will never learn. Because that cycle that they just prayed back to God I don't know how many times, I didn't count them, but over and over and over, that's our cycle. We don't learn either. Isn't it crazy? Every time you've been at that rock bottom moment and you learn, you see how far I've walked away from God, you never saw it coming. And neither did I. How did I get here? And because we've gotten there so many times, that's when you have thought Isn't God getting sick of this? I'm getting sick of this. Isn't God sick of me? I'm sick of me. Wouldn't God be sick of me by now? Maybe this is the time. Maybe this is the time God says, I'm done with that clown. I don't want to hear it. Don't come crawling back to me again. How can you not see this coming? You thought that was better for you, more fun for you, more pleasing to you. You go have that because I'm done with you. You ever thought that? We're so selfish. (laughs) You know why we think that? Because the parts of that cycle that we tend to think of is the parts about me, my sin. Which part are you missing when you think about that? What God does every single time. The reason the cycle repeats is because God doesn't change. Let me show you the most important part of this passage. It comes right on the heels of the very first time the cycle starts. He says, okay, God, you took us out of Egypt and you, you, know, you put the beat down, you put the smack down on Pharaoh and you brought us out through the Red Sea and we got out there, but we got stubborn and we didn't like, and we made a plan to go back into slavery. We decided we like slavery in Egypt better than freedom with you. And God still took them into the promised land. You know why? Because he promised. Verses 17 and 18. They, this is these people's ancestors, Okay, Israel, they refused to obey you. They did not recall your miracles that you had performed among them. Instead, they rebelled and they appointed a leader so that they could return to their bondage in Egypt. I love this part. If you're a Bible underliner, underliner, underline this. But you are a God of forgiveness. You are merciful. You are compassionate. You are slow to get angry. You are unfailing, unfailing in chesed, in loyal love. Loving kindness, your Bible might call it. And because that's who you are, you did not abandon them. 
even when they made a bovine in shop class and decided to call it God, right? They made a molten calf, called it God, worshipped it, committed atrocious atrocities. You still didn't abandon them. And that cycle repeats countless times in this passage. And God takes Israel back every single time. Now answer this question to yourself. Why? Why does God keep taking Israel back every single time? Two reasons. First, he promised. He promised there will always be a nation. I'm going to bring the Messiah out of that nation, so I'm not going to be done with them. And second, God always takes them back because that's who God is. God is forgiveness, mercy, compassion. Slow to get angry. It's who he is. God doesn't change. I I want you to always, always, always remember something about God. I want you to remember lots of things about God. But this morning, I want you especially to remember this. God is so much not like you and me. And here's what I mean by that. You probably could give me an example or two of a person that you would consider uh, forgiving, compassionate, and slow to get angry. Can you think of a person like that? That Probably the people you don't know very well. But anyway, you, you could probably give me an example of somebody that's forgiving and slow to anger. But the reason you think that person is that way is because you watch their behavior for a while. And if they behave in those ways, you assume them to be like that. But you only think of that person that way until their behavior changes, and then you will change their mind about your mind about who they are, right? God's not like that. God's behavior just comes out of his character. God is always those things. That's who he is. He he never changes. And even when God's behavior seems to disagree with that, even when God allows something in your life, this man, this doesn't seem like you're very loving. Doesn't seem like you're very loyal. Doesn't seem like you're very compassionate, God. Even when God allows something like that, he is either, he's either giving discipline because what he wants is you to come back. Stop chasing that which is bad for you and come walk with who is good for you. I love you so much, I can't let you keep doing that. Or, if it's not discipline and God allows something bad in your life, he loves you so much that he wants you to take, feel that pressure and press into him and grow and mature and understand that he is greater than those circumstances. He may want to make a, a testimony of himself out of you because he loves you and loves other people and he wants other people to see your faith through that pressure because he loves. And you have to agree with this. With this. Your behavior is never going to change God's character. Right? 
And your behavior is not going to control God's behavior. Right? Like you can't manipulate God. Right? Then why is it? Why is it that you think when you start to realize your sin, you think God has maybe stopped being that? Like, like God's, done, God's been a part of this cycle a lot, a lot more times than you have been. Thousands of years, God's been taking back sinners when they cry out to him every single time. Why is it that you think, I think this sin has broken God? Like God's not compassionate anymore because this sin's mine. Right? I'm the one who made God lose his mind and change his character. You know why we think that? Because that's how we are. That's how we are. You know someone only gets so many chances with you before you are done with them. You can only hurt me so many times and I've got to be done with you. I can only forgive so much. I can only be so loyal. My loyalty is dependent on your loyalty. Right? For us, in many ways, someone else's behavior does determine our behavior because we're not like God. Don't put that on God. God's not like that. He is compassionate. He is forgiving. He is slow to anger. He is gracious. He is merciful every single day. From eternity past to eternity future. And you are not going to change him, sinner. Amen? So, what is the result in our life or the application of learning this about God? Do you see how that's the main point of this passage? They rehearse. These people are freaked out because they've recognized their sin and they start biting their nails and go, maybe this is the time. Holy smokes, look at the law. We're supposed to live like this. I'm nothing like this. Maybe God's going to be done with us. And they keep reading. They read. 12 hours. And you know what they learn? God always takes us back. Over and over and over. Like write it down, depend on it. He always takes us back. That's what they learn. Now what's the result of learning that about God? Here's what the result is not. Sweet. I can do whatever I want. Like, I've got a license to sin now because he'll take me back. Like, God's a cosmic sucker. Let me tell you why these people know that's not the response. They're sitting in Jerusalem as what's left of Israel because God promised. But the Israel they're sitting in is a dump compared to the old Israel. And their nation is a fraction of the size it could be and they don't control their own lives. And that's all the result of their sin. Sin has consequences. You don't want to be at another rock bottom again. You know why? Because it stinks. Because sin has consequences. Because it hurts. Sin is death seeping into your life and your relationships. And it fouls everything up. And it hurts and it's lousy. Sin has consequences. 
Sometimes we feel like we have a license to sin. That's why we get on that cycle. And then turns out our sin makes a mess out of stuff and we go, oh, how did I get here again? But guess what? One of the one of the one of the the, the the things that sin brings. What am I trying to say? One of the consequences of sin. Guess what? One of them never will be that God will ever get to the point where where He says, "No, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. You will not make God fail to be forgiving." And loyal, chesed, this Hebrew word, loyal love. He's loyal to you, even though you're in that cycle all the time. You will never make him not be that. There may be countless consequences, but God's refusal to take you back will never be one of them. So what is the result? What's the conclusion? What's the application? Cool thing is I didn't even have to make one up for this sermon because these people did it for us. It was the whole purpose of this church service. We see it at the beginning, and we sort of see it at the end. They come together and they confess to the God they know will take them back. Okay, now it's our turn. We are the ones who have loused things up now, God. And we're going to spend some time confessing our sin to you because we know you still love us. We know you will take us back. We know we haven't broken you. And our sin is not the sin that will cause you to break your promises. And that should be the result every single day of our knowing who God is. Every time we realize we have stepped away, we have missed the mark, we have sinned, we should confess that in return. We're... You know why you're always in that cycle? When at the beginning of the sermon, when I said that cycle describes you, you know how I can be so confident of that? Because every single sin is the start of that cycle. The only question is, how many sins down the road do you get before you turn around? Your cycles either look like this, or they look like this. We have a chance to turn every single time we sin. And we confess that to God, and he'll always take us back. How rocky do you want your next rock bottom to be? How low will you go? He will take you back, but why wait? That's what these people learn as they look through the scriptures and the history of their nation. We can go toward this God we have sinned against. He will take us back. They look around at a reminder of how costly sin can be, but it will never cost them the grace of God. Getting to know that, that's why people have been writing songs for hundreds of years like the one we sang. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest stars and reaches to the lowest what? Reaches to the lowest hell. That, the hymn writer does not mean God's going to save people out of hell. What it means is, I don't care how low you get, you have not outsinned the love of God and his blood shed on a cross. Confess to him and turn. He will take you back. Pray with me. Father God, I thank you so much for your undying love.
Thank you that in spite of our sin, you are a God of forgiveness, merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, unfailing, never ceasing in loyal love towards sinful people who believe in you. God, you have been completing this cycle when people cry out to you for thousands of years. Yet sometimes we think you've quit being you because we've continued being us. Forgive us when we put our character faults on you. Thank you that your love never ceases. It goes beyond the highest stars and reaches to the lowest hell. God, I pray for myself and my family here today. God, you would impress on us a desire to turn and confess. Stop deceiving ourselves that our sin isn't real or it doesn't matter. Stop deceiving ourselves that you won't take us back or don't really love us. That our cycles might be quick. We might come back in to the love of God. God, we can boldly approach you on your throne because you have paid the penalty it took to forgive our sins. Thank you for being you, even when we are us. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name.